Chapter Fifteen of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Fifteen, Riven with Vain Endeavour. After a few hours' flight, the fairy Vogelflug's team of doves had safely deposited her at the entrance to the palace of King Tournesol. She ascertained that Prince Mirliflor was within and went at once to his apartments. He received her with his usual respect, but there was a reserve in his manner which showed that the memory of his late fiasco was still rankling. His reserve increased perceptibly after she had explained the purpose of her visit. He altogether declined to consider a second matrimonial venture on her recommendation, hinting as politely as possible that her idea of a suitable concert for him was too unlikely to correspond with his own. "'You mean with the ideal of your visions?' she said. And you saw her again last night. Now didn't you, Merleflor? I did, he said. But how did you know that? How did I know? Because I sent you the vision, of course. I sent you the formal one, too, though there were reasons why I couldn't tell you so till now. And why do you tantalize me by making me dream of an unattainable perfection? he asked hotly. Can you suppose that anything short of it will ever content me now, since I cannot hope to find so sweet and fair a princess in all the world, I am only the more resolved to live and die unmarried. She exists, or I could not have shown her to you in a vision. You have only to do exactly as I tell you, Mirliflor, and you shall see her, and win her, if you can. You said all that about the other one, Godmother Voldoiseau, he replied. No, it's no good. I really can't trust you again." "'Don't be obstinate, Merleflor, or you'll put me in a passion, and that's dangerous at my age. I grant you I was wrong about Princess Edna. But I'm not wrong now. I assure you that, if you saw this girl, you would own that she was no less fair than she appeared in your visions.' "'But if there indeed lives so lovely a princess,' he said, "'how comes it that I have never heard of her existence?' "'She is no princess, Merleflor, merely a poor friendless girl I have chosen to protect.' "'So much the better,' he said. "'She's the less likely to refuse me.' "'Because you're a prince? Just so. But I don't intend that she shall accept you for any such reason. I shall not allow you to see her at all unless you promise not to reveal your rank, or even your real name, to her until I give you leave to do so.' "'You have my word, godmother,' he replied. "'After all, it may be that, even without rank or title, I shall succeed in obtaining favour in her eyes. You trust to your good looks, but those too you must consent to sacrifice. Love that is based on mere outward appearance soon passes. I have to be very careful now how I exercise any magic power whatever. Each time it takes more and more out of me, and even sending you these visions taxed me most severely. Still, I will make another effort and change you into a less comely form. "'I suppose you're proposing to turn me into a beast of some kind,' he said. "'If so, I cry off. I know it succeeded with an ancestor of ours, but that was centuries ago, and I'm not inclined to undertake the risk myself.' "'I'm not asking you to undertake it. The form you would assume would be human, and not in the least repulsive. In strict fairness, I ought to transform the girl as well. But as I know very well that, if I did, you would never so much as look at her.' I must leave her as she is. Only, 
if you don't consent to be transformed yourself, you will never see her at all. But what if I let myself be transformed and find out when I see her that she doesn't resemble my vision? You need not fear that, but if, when you see her, you wish to withdraw, I will bring you back here and restore you to your own shape again, and thus you will be none the worse. Well, he said, on those terms I agree. Upon which the fairy began her incantations, and, after one or two failures, succeeded in remembering the precise formula and accomplishing the metamorphosis. "'I knew it would come back to me in time,' she remarked, exhausted but gratified. "'I shall suffer for it later, but it's certainly a highly successful piece of work, as you will see if you go and look at yourself in that mirror.' When he looked, it was a complete stranger that he saw reflected. A young man of his own height and figure, but with features that, without being absolutely plain, required ordinary. His own curling brown locks were replaced by short black hair, and his complexion had deepened from its original slight bronze to a swarthy hue. Even his silken velvet suit had suffered a change, and was now a coarse leather jerkin with hose and sleeves of russet cloth. "'You might just as well have made a beast of me outright,' he said bitterly. "'I should have been as likely to win the heart of any maiden as I am now.' "'My dear Mirliflor,' retorted the fairy, "'if, as you are now, you cannot win this girl by your own worth, it will either be because she is not worth winning, or you have not sufficient worth to deserve her.' "'And how?' he asked. "'Am I to set about winning her?' "'You will start at once for Esvaranmal, on horseback, if you like, provided your horse and his trappings are not too fine. You will leave him outside the city, and find your way to one of the side entrances of the palace, where you will ask an attendant to inform me that Giroflet, as you'll henceforth call yourself, has arrived in obedience to my summons. I will arrange that you shall see this girl, and it will then be for you to say whether you will go any further or not in this enterprise. You had better leave the palace without seeing the king, your father, and I will explain to him that there were good and sufficient reasons for your secret departure. However, when she did obtain an audience from King Tournesol, she saw that he was not in a mood that promised a favourable reception to any further matrimonial project on Mirliflor's behalf, at all events from her. So she merely informed him that Mirliflor had left Clairdelune to seek a bride for himself, and that he might be absent for some time. She did not mention his transformation, and was disingenuous enough to agree with the king that the prince had behaved most unfilially in departing without permission. But King Tournesol was too glad that his son's thoughts had again turned to marriage to be very seriously angry, and the fairy left him in tolerable good humour, and got back to Eswarenmal long before Merleflor, who reached the palace at last, after a journey of entirely unfamiliar discomfort, and a total lack of the deference and attention he had always hitherto received as of right. He made his way in an aggrieved and rather rebellious frame of mind to a side entrance, and, on inquiring for the court godmother, was taken at once to her apartments. After hearing his tale of hardships, which she merely said were extremely good for him, she led him down by a private staircase to the gardens at the back of the palace, and through them, by a postern gate of which she had the key, to an uncultivated region of the glades and groves. Here she ordered him to conceal himself behind a thicket at the edge of a clearing, and to remain there till she gave him leave to come out. He waited for what seemed an interminable time, and then his patience was rewarded. The fairy returned with the very lady of his visions. This time, at least, 
His godmother had not deceived him. The living reality was even more radiantly beautiful than his dream. They passed and repassed him several times, and, if he had not seen Daphne, the mere sound of her gay, sweet voice would have been enough to enslave him. But he could see her perfectly well, and note the animation of her every gesture, the easy grace with which she moved, and her pretty tenderness for the old woman who was leaning on her strong young arm. When would the fairy see fit to call him forth and present him to this adorable being? And yet, inconsistently enough, he was dreading the moment. How could he hope, changed as he was now, that those bright eyes would regard him with any interest whatever? But, as it happened, they did not regard him at all on this occasion. For, after a few more turns up and down the clearing, the fairy retired with her protégé, and presently reappeared alone. "'Well,' she said, as Merleflor came forward at her summons, "'now you've seen her, what is your decision?' "'I stay here,' he replied, "'and will submit to anything, as long as there is a chance of gaining her.' "'I expect as much,' she said, "'and I have arranged that you shall be employed here as one of the royal under-gardeners.' "'An under-gardener?' he exclaimed. "'Really, godmother, that is not giving me a fair chance.' and I've never done any gardening in my life. Then it is high time you began, she said calmly. It will not only give you a greater respect for manual labour, but subdue your pride. You have left me nothing I can be proud of, and what opportunity shall I have of even seeing her? You will be given the key which will admit you to the grounds, and the pavilion in which she lives not far from here. As to opportunities of meeting her, you must make them for yourself. Those are my conditions, said the despotic old fairy, and if you don't choose to accept them, you may as well return to Clairdelune at once, for I shall take care that you never see her again. Oh, I accept, he said. I can't help myself. Only it does seem to me, godmother, that if you are really anxious that I should succeed, you might make it easier for me than this. No doubt, she said. But if it was easy, there would be no merit in success. I am putting her to the test, remember, as well as you, and until I see how you both come through it, I cannot be certain that you are really fitted for one another. She had, as a matter of fact, quite made up her mind that they should marry, but she could not resist such an opening for one of the practical moral lessons which, as a fairy godmother of the fine old didactic type, she had often brought to an effectively instructive denouement. But if she was enjoying herself over the probation, it is more than can be said for the unhappy Merleflor. It is true that, owing to the court godmother's protection, he was treated by the head gardener with some indulgence, but, nevertheless, he had to work much harder and longer than he liked. Sometimes, however, he was sent to the outlying part of the gardens, where he was under no supervision, and then it was easy to slip away to the postern gate, which his key enabled him to enter and he was not long in discovering the pavilion which sheltered his divinity. He wore a big apron, and carried a pair of garden shears, with which he lopped and trimmed a shrub now and then by way of accounting for his intrusion, and sometimes he was rewarded by a glimpse of her. But that was all, for, with a diffidence he had never known before, he did not venture near enough to speak. The fact was that he was morbidly self-conscious about his altered appearance, if the fairy had only let him retain his own form, he thought, he would not have hesitated a moment, but her disdain was more than he could bring himself to face, and so he watched from afar, and when she wandered out would follow at a distance, 
keeping her in view, while remaining unseen himself. It was, as he felt, not precisely the way to conduct a courtship, and he despised himself for his want of courage. But he always hoped that something might happen to bring them together, though it seemed less and less likely that anything would. Daphne, meanwhile, was growing resigned to her exclusion from the palace, which she chiefly regretted because she could see nothing of Ruby, the one member of the royal family for whom she could feel any real affection. She expected to hear at any moment that the car was ready to take her back to England, where she would have to find employment if she could. The Queen had certainly furnished her with a character. "'Miss Heritage,' the reference stated, "'has been for some months in the servants of Her Majesty Queen Selina of Meichenland as governess companion to Her Majesty's younger daughter, Princess Ruby. Her Majesty could not conscientiously recommend Miss Heritage as a teacher for advanced pupils, but has no doubt that she would be fairly competent to undertake a situation as nursery governess. That was all, and Daphne did not think it would do much for her. And besides, people might want to know who the Queen of Mechenland was, which would be awkward to explain. But perhaps the court godmother would see that she was not sent home without funds enough to support her till she could get an engagement. She would be rather sorry to leave Mechenland, which queer country as it was in some ways, she had come to look upon her home. However, she did not worry much about the future, being content to enjoy her present restful life as long as she might. She was comfortable enough in the pavilion, where she was well looked after by an elderly taciturn attendant, one of the court godmother's own waiting-women. The old fairy herself came from time to time to inquire after Daphne's health and bring her news of the court, and her visits were welcome. When alone, Daphne spent much of her time over the ancient chronicles, which the fairy had provided for her, and which she found strangely fascinating. Or when she was disinclined to read or embroider, she would explore the grounds about the pavilion, which were wild and neglected enough to impart a sense of adventure to her wanderings. Often, as she walked and worked or read, her thoughts would drift into dreams, the dreams that come to most girls, of a Prince Charming who would discover her in her retreat and be her champion and deliver her. In a country like this, such a dream was less unlikely to come true than elsewhere, and yet she always ended by laughing at herself for indulging it. The prince, for of course he must be a prince, would have to make haste if he was to find her still in Märchenland. But even if he came in time, she thought, it would be useless. His arrival would be reported at once to the queen for she had lately become aware that she was being watched by someone who was obviously not the gardener he tried to appear, and whom she had more than once detected in the act of following her in secret. He must be either a spy or a guard with orders to prevent her escape, as if she were likely to attempt it when there was no place to which she could escape. She had made no complaint to the court godmother, being unwilling to trouble the old fairy with a matter of so little importance but she took her revenge on the spy by making his task as difficult as she could. If she detected him in time lying in wait in the bushes by the front of the pavilion, she would slip out at the back and reach her favourite haunts by a roundabout path screened by yew hedges, while he imagined her to be still indoors. He was really such an unsuspicious spy that there was hardly any fun in baffling him. She had done so with the usual success one hot afternoon, and was making for a tree under which she often sat. It had great glossy leaves, and gorgeous flowers with a delicate but penetrating scent, and the thought of the coolness beneath its spreading branches was particularly attractive just then. 
After looking round and satisfying herself that she had not been pursued, she sat down and opened the book she had brought, a chronicle of the lives of the sovereigns of Mergenland. She had read most of it already, and instead of reading any more, she found herself thinking of the contrast between their earlier kings and queens and the present occupiers of the throne. The former sovereigns had had their failings. Some of them had been arbitrary and wrong-headed, one or two cruel and tyrannical, but none had ever been vulgar or ridiculous. She could understand poor Mr. Wibberley Stimson's being so hopelessly out of his element, but it seemed strange that Queen Selina, who was the daughter of a Mergenland prince, should not have inherited any trace of royal dignity. They were quite incapable of governing the people who, as Daphne knew, regarded them with scarcely disguised contempt. And it was such a pity, for the good Mergenlanders had been so loyal at first. They would be loyal still, if only they had a sovereign for whom they could feel a particle of... She had got to this point in her meditations when she was startled by a stealthy rustle in the branches overhead. The spy had been too clever for her after all. Well, she thought, with malicious amusement, if he chose to take the trouble of climbing a tree to watch her, she would keep him employed up there as long as possible, and see which would tire first. He was evidently getting cramped already, for the branches were cracking quite loudly, but she would not look up or show that she was in the least aware of him. And then, suddenly, a heavy body fell with a flop on the open book in her lap, and she realized with terror that it was no spy she had to deal with, but an infinitely more formidable enemy. It was a huge serpent that had coiled itself swiftly on her knees, which quivered under the intolerable weight, while its tail twisted round her ankles, binding them fast, and it reared its evil flat head, crested like a peacock's, to a level with her chin. Its markings, in alternate rings of cream, vermilion, black and orange, were strangely beautiful, but she was in no mood to admire them as she sat there, spellbound under its cold, tawny eyes. Presently it spoke words which made her wish that its speech had been unintelligible. "'Yes,' it said, "'you're quite right to be afraid of me. I am here to kill you.' "'Then don't talk about it,' said Daphne, her throat so parched that she could scarcely speak. "'If you must kill me, do it at once and get it over.' "'Not yet,' it said malignantly. "'You have an agony of terror to go through before that. When I see your eyes close, I shall know that the time has come, and I shall strike my fangs into that white throat of yours, and you will recover just sense enough to feel what pain it is to die. Daphne would very possibly have closed her eyes at once, and received a death-stroke, rather than listen any longer to the creature's threats, but she had just become aware that help was at hand, the person she believed to be a spy was stealing up, treading noiselessly over the velvet turf, his hands already outstretched with the evident purpose of seizing the reptile from behind. If she could only engage it in conversation for a minute or two, there was still a chance for her. "'I have done you no harm,' she said, after moistening her dry lips. "'Why should you hate me like this?' "'Ask Cyril, my master,' replied the serpent. "'who called me into being for no other purpose than to put you to death.' "'But I have done Xuriel no injury.' "'Then it may be you are an enemy of the Count, whose servant he is. "'I know not, nor is it any matter. 
all i know is that i have been sent here to and here it broke off in a dreadful strangled scream as a pair of strong hands clutched it firmly by the throat and dragged it writhing into the open daphne sat helplessly looking on as her rescuer struggled with the thing which had wound its coils around his waist and leg and was trying hard to free its head and strike he held the venomous head at arm's length gripping his throat tight while the foam slavered from its distended jaws but it was stronger than he and as he recognized this he urged daphne to save herself while there was time she had already risen as she had got over any tendency to faint but she had no intention of leaving him to his fate she had just seen in a pocket of his leather apron those big garden shears which she had noticed him plying with such marked incompetence and it occurred to her suddenly that they might be of some real service now she ran up and watching her opportunity succeeded in whipping them out then she stepped behind the serpent and forced the blades together just below the part of its neck that was in her champion's grasp there was a highly unpleasant scrunch and jar as they closed but she pressed with all her strength until the reptile's spine was cut through and its body uncoiled itself from the young man and went writhing and rolling blindly through the grass daphne dropped the shears and got out of its way in sudden panic it's not that i'm sure it isn't she cried to the stranger whom she had somehow ceased to think of as a spy it's harmless enough now fair lady he said as he tossed its crested head into the undergrowth thanks to your courage i never killed anything before she said i hated doing it and it seems such a silly way to kill a snake it succeeded he said wondering how those small slim hands could have had the strength i could not have held it much longer you have saved my life i couldn't have she said if you hadn't saved mine first i know now that you have only been watching and following me about as you have to see that i didn't get into any danger so you were aware that i watched you he said daphne laughed how could i help being she replied and of course i guessed at once that you weren't a real gardener what makes you suppose that he said well she said laughing again i happen to have seen you at work you know i may have little skill he said nevertheless i have obtained employment here as a gardener i mustn't ask you questions she said but i'm quite sure that before you came here you were in a very different position from any laborers she had noticed a refinement in his speech and manner and also the shapeliness of his hands which the fairy had been considerate or forgetful enough to leave unaltered but daphne's words gave him a sudden hope had she detected that he was a prince if so he was released from his promise of silence all i may tell you he said is that there were reasons which obliged me to leave my own country and live here where i am unknown but i think you have guessed more than that already i will tell you what i think she said i believe you are really a student and whatever you had to leave your country for it was nothing you have any cause to be ashamed of i expect you are accused of plotting against your government and i don't care if you did because you wouldn't have if they'd governed properly anyway you escaped and thought you'd be safe if you could get a post in the royal gardens there it's only a guess of course and you needn't tell me whether i'm right or not he allowed her to think she was as it was a far more creditable explanation than any he could have invented for himself it was rather clever of me to guess all that she said 
but it would have been cleverer of you to choose something you knew a little more about than gardening, wouldn't it? And we can't be strangers after this. That thing there, and she indicated the headless serpent, which had now ceased to writhe, and lay limp in the grass, with all its brilliant colour faded to dingy grey, introduced us, but it carelessly forgot to mention our names. Perhaps, he said, quite seriously, it did not know them. That would account for it, certainly, agreed Daphne, with equal gravity, though her eyes danced. Then I'd better explain that I was Princess Ruby's governess before we came here, since then I've been a sort of lady-in-waiting, and now I'm nothing at all. I'm in disgrace like you. My name is Daphne Heritage. Now tell me yours. Giroflet? Well, I'm going back to the pavilion now. I don't feel safe anywhere else. Yes, you can see me out of this dreadful place, just in case there should be another snake about, she conceded, for her nerves were beginning to feel a reaction, and she was glad of his protection. So he walked humbly by her side, saying little for fear of saying too much, till they came within sight of the pavilion, and then she dismissed him. "'We will say good-bye here,' she said, "'and you mustn't keep at a distance any more. It will be too absurd now. You must come and speak to me, of course, though I may be sent back to England at a moment's notice, and then you won't see me again. But if you don't, I shall never forget how bravely you risked your life for me.' She gave him her hand. He held its cool silken softness for a moment, and would have raised it to his lips but for this new humility of his. Then, with a friendly but almost careless little nod, she was gone, leaving him with the conviction that it was indifferent to her, whether they ever met again or not. He felt that the fates had not been as propitious as they might. They had permitted him to rescue her, but then he had been rescued by her immediately afterwards, a most humiliating anticlimax. There was one service he could still do her, he thought, and cutting himself a stout stick, he made a thorough search of the groves, where, however, rather to his disappointment, he discovered no serpents of any kind. But, in his anxiety for Daphne, he insisted on seeing the court godmother at once, and warning her of the dangers to which she was exposing her protégé. The old fairy was secretly disconcerted, though she did not, of course, admit that there had been any neglect on her part, "'I'm not at all surprised, Merlifleur. In fact, I fully expected something of this sort to happen,' she said unblushingly. "'But I knew very well that there was no danger while you were there to look after her.' "'But it may happen again,' he urged, "'that a cursed Xuriel may create another serpent, and the next time I mayn't be at hand, unless you can get me excused altogether from working in the gardens.' "'I shall not do that, Merlifleur,' said the inflexible old fairy. And what you fear will not happen again. To begin with, that serpent was never created by Xuriel. But I heard it say that he had called it into being. And have you ever known a serpent tell the truth? No, no, Merlifleur. Master Xuriel is clever enough in his way, but he couldn't make a serpent of that size. From what you tell me, it was evidently a crested serpent, which he had got hold of and trained, and I happen to know it was the last existing but I will have a rope of fine silk, woven with a certain spell, laid round the pavilion, and no snake, magic or otherwise, will be able to cross that. It's quite unnecessary, and will be extremely exhausting to me. Still, I'll do it, just to set your mind at ease, and I'll tell her not to go about alone in future, 
but I can't have you going in there whenever you choose in future. The head gardener was complaining to me that you are neglecting your work, and it won't do to excite his suspicion. You must not attempt to see her till the close of the day, which will leave you ample time for your love-making. No, she's not going to be sent back to England. I shall take care of that. So you can keep a good heart, Merleflor. I consider you've made an excellent beginning. He was far from sure of it himself, but at least Daphne would be better protected henceforth, and even if he could no longer look after her by day, which he fully intended to do when he found an opportunity, he could at least see her every evening. It was some comfort, too, to feel that he could rely on her remaining in Mergenland. On her next visit to the pavilion, the court godmother heard Daphne's version of the meeting with Giroflé. "'I take an interest in the young man,' she said. "'Indeed, I got him his place here. He seems to have behaved very creditably for a mere gardener, though I dare say you think him beneath your notice.' "'After he had saved my life?' said Daphne, indignantly. "'As if I could, whoever he was. But—' "'As you take an interest in him, court godmother, you must know as well as I do that he isn't really a gardener at all.' "'Oh, indeed,' said the fairy suspiciously. "'And how did you find that out? From him?' "'No, I guessed. And then he had to admit it.' "'And what did he admit?' "'Well, that he is a student, and has had to go into hiding because he was suspected of being mixed up in some plot or other. He didn't tell me any more than that.' "'Ah!' said the fairy, concealing her relief. "'He told you more than was prudent as it was, but I suppose he thought he could trust you with his secret.' "'And don't you, court godmother?' flashed Daphne. "'Oh, I don't think you would betray him. You mustn't go and lose your heart to him, though. That would never do.' Daphne laughed. "'Court godmother,' she said, "'you're not really afraid of my falling in love with him, are you?' "'Well, no, my dear. Fortunately, he's not good-looking enough to make me very uneasy about that. I should be much more afraid that he might fall in love with you.' "'Oh, I hope he won't do that, poor fellow,' said Daphne, with a sudden and uneasy recollection of how he had followed her in secret. "'But I'm going home so soon that I mayn't even see him again.' "'You may have to stay here some time longer,' said the fairy. "'so it's quite possible that he will try to see more of you. "'However, it will be easy for you to tell him plainly "'that you don't want to have anything to do with him.' "'But I don't mind his speaking to me,' said Daphne. "'I told him he might. "'I should hate hurting him like that. "'And, after all, court godmother, "'if he should show any signs of, of what you're afraid of, "'he will soon see that it's no use and be sensible about it. "'I dare say you're right, my dear, I dare say you're right,' agreed the court godmother. "'And anyhow, it will be time enough to trouble about that when it happens, which very likely it never will.' But in her heart she was more convinced than ever that Merleflor had made a very good beginning. End of chapter 15